This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, we talk a lot about inflation here in the UK. But what's going on in other countries? Are they seeing costs rise by the same amount? And if not, why not? We go around the world, we fire up Times Radio Airways uh, to get the picture in as many countries as we possibly can in 25 minutes. Uh, before that, though, as ever, it's, we kick off with our economist panel, and it's a Tuesday, so it must be... Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yeah, it's everybody's favourite time on a Tuesday. We're joined. He's in the studios. Daniel Finkelstein. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And beaming in from outer space, it's David Aronovich. Morning, David. <laughs> How are you? I'm not bad at all. Not bad at all. How are you, more importantly? Um, I was just thinking, you know, that your your stage thing. I once did a book event at Hay on Wide Book. I'd done a book about conspiracy theories, and there were a good 800 people in this big tent, but the chair hadn't turned out. It was Jon Snow, and he wasn't there. So after all, we just said, we've got to start this, and so on. And it was bit, the whole thing was being filmed. And at a certain point, I said, um, what, and, and so I'm going to try and imagine what it was, what it is that Jon Snow would ask me now. And unbeknownst to me, because I couldn't see the big screen behind me, the guy who was directing put the camera on the empty chair and the whole tent erupted in laughter. And I was the only person there. I had no idea why. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we've been talking about things that have gone wrong. Something must have gone wrong for you, Daniel, uh, on stage. Uh, well, I've had several times where the person you've got, I've gone all the way to deliver a speech somewhere. And when I got there, the person couldn't even remember what my name was. Uh, I did also the, the one time I, I was sitting in the audience uh, and um, the, the person who was introducing it thought that I'd gone home. And so he said, I'm sorry to tell you that Daniel Finkelstein isn't here. I then stood up and said, no, I am here. Um, stepped forward, tripped over somebody's briefcase and um, then staggered the entire length <laughs> of the stage before holding on to the platform. I've always made a joke that basically in public speaking, providing you don't actually hit your head on the podium, uh, you can usually do a reasonable job. And um, I, I actually did hit my head on the podium on that occasion, and still it was fine. 
So that's some top tips there for John Pienaar later on when he's uh, when he's hosting the Hustings. Um, let's talk then about that. Uh, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Part of, there's part of me that sort of thinks, well, he's been going on for so long that we know everything they're going to say. And yet, because they keep changing their positions, every new event could open up some new doors. In particular, um, this question of who would sue serve in whose cabinet. So it was only a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about 10 days ago, I interviewed Rishi Sunak on the show, and I asked him if he would take a job in Liz Truss's cabinet. Yeah, well, look, I, I mean, get fo all this focus on jobs and all the rest of it is not really what I think anyone is focused on, right? What they're focused on is that what are you going to do for the country? And I've been very clear about what I want to do for the country. I think it is important that we get a grip of inflation. I think it's important that we help the most vulnerable people through what is going to be a difficult autumn and winter. And I think it's important that we have someone who can get to grips with the challenges we face on things like the NHS and tackling illegal migration and making sure that our economy and education system is fit for the future. Now, I'm really excited about delivering that vision. I want us to build an economy that is incredibly dynamic. But now he says he wouldn't. He, uh, Rishi Sunak says that he, uh, because they don't agree on the big things. And he says, well, he's got some experience of, of when you're slightly at odds with the prime minister's position. It, it, this is probably where he was going to end up, wasn't it, Danny? Yeah, I don't think that was a U-turn. I mean, obviously, decidedly wasn't going to answer your question. But he had then... previously. So I think my, my question was already a midpoint in his journey. He'd originally said he would serve. He uh, wandered away from the question entirely in response to me and last night basically said no. Uh, I, I, look, I, I, perhaps at an earlier stage in this campaign, it may have struck him that he could serve... Um, it's kind of obvious during this campaign that the differences between them are pretty serious on a major issue. And essentially, Liz Truss's campaign is arguing Rishi Sunak was a socialist chancellor who's put up... Um, who, I mean, that's what they are arguing, yeah. that he's put up... Um, I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg has said that in terms. He's putting up... Uh, he put up taxes and uh, increased public spending, um, ignoring completely the fact that the public spending was obviously a commitment in the last general election uh, by everybody in the Conservative Party... Uh, so as if he had invented the taxes himself. Um, and um, it's impossible, I think, in those <coughs> circumstances, as they set about reversing policies that he thought were necessary for him to, um, for him to serve. I, I've thought that for a while, so I wasn't surprised he's ended up accepting that. It's a pretty hard thing for him to have to accept. And actually, by the way, it's, I think it's a problem for Liz Truss and a pretty hard thing um, for, for all of us who you know, are not, um, are not supporting her in the leadership election um, to accept that um, she'll position herself in such a way as to make it impossible even for those people who disagree with her to serve in her in her government. And that means that this election's already taking place between two people on the right of the Conservative Party. Uh, and now um, one set of people on the right of the Conservative Party is look, set about to exclude the other set, including Michael Gove um, and uh, Rishi Sunak, from uh, the government. Well, uh, you know, I think the Conservative Party is going to narrow itself um, in, in a way that will damage its prospects and, and will damage the country too. Uh, it's all right, though, uh, David, because uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg apparently is going to have a job in the cabinet still. So, you know, he, maybe, he can do, maybe he can do all the jobs. Uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, uh, but, but what's interesting about this is when Liz Truss said, I'm going to have a budget immediately after I get into uh, office, and no, I don't care what the Office of Budget Responsibility has to say about it. We don't need it because I know what I'm going to do. Um, that was, I think, two days ago. And then Gavin Barwell, who's Theresa May's ex-chief of staff, tweeted out, oh, I think it's bad. We need kind of, you know, unity and people to come together at the end of this. So I said to him, 
Well, I don't see how Rishi Sunak can possibly serve in a government where you do a budget like that, because he just doesn't believe he thinks it's entirely wrong. Uh, then the next bit of news we get is that Rishi Sunak is saying he isn't going to serve in this trusses government, presumably partially because of that. And then the next thing we hear here is that she's not going to have an emergency budget after all that doesn't go to the ABR. Uh, and you used to talk about poor old John Pienaar having to interview both of them. And you can look at this in two ways. The fact that they keep on changing where they stand on things might make something new happen uh, during the course of the debate. But the fact that they keep on changing their minds on things means it doesn't matter what they say. Can I just slightly disagree with this? I, although although it's certainly true that um, there, there are there have been details in it. So, for example, whether or not what she's going to present is an emergency budget or a fiscal event, right? Yeah. Um, which are different fiscal things. And, well, they, no, they are different things, a David. Fiscal event. Fiscal event. Otherwise, she's not going to. I've been, I, I, I was invited to one of those. Ones. No, we, we know what those are. The 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 the, uh, the idea of presenting some partial measures, right, which don't require a. F and Rishi Sunak's done that too. Uh, in fact, lots of chancellors have done that. So, whether it's going to be one or the other of those things, but the 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 central argument between the two of them it hasn't shifted that much um they 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 set about a sort of core of ideas of how they thought government should be conducted and actually have stayed the argument has been around those things and it's been reasonably consistent i i hang, I, hang on if you go right back to the beginning liz trust said uh tax cuts no handouts and he's did it all the way through on whether or not there will be handouts well, richie sunak said uh, he wouldn't. Uh, he ruled out lots of tax cuts, and then said he would take VAT well, he, off he, he, energy bill. They they have both changed. He's already taken some VAT off energy bill. So, so he his position, which is basically the the national insurance and corporate corporation tax measures were necessary, and he's going to stick with them. Uh, the fiscal settlement is broadly right, um, but you're going to need some emergency action to deal with the uh, energy price rises. Her position is um, we need to drive down taxes. That's how you get growth in the economy. Naturally, she's then struggled with the pertinent question, what are we going to do about this immediate emergency, which I think is an inherent flaw of her position. She hasn't reversed that position. I only wish she would uh, do so. Um, but uh, uh, there's, there's a, uh, it is quite hard to make policy, by the way, when you're not actually doing it as ministers in office. Simply the, the you know, having done it myself a bit with William Hague, the the the, the machinery you have when you're not actually the minister in ministerial office is poor. Um, I, I'd be for the making fewer of these promises. I'm not surprised they get tangled in the details of them because I don't think it's a very effective or good idea to start making these kind of promises. Is, it, is that slightly a symptom of such a long campaign? Just to, uh, just to, yes. just to, just to keep saying things. It is, but but I but I don't think it is a characteristic of this leadership race, uh, that they're all over the shop and we've got no idea where they're standing for because they change their mind all the time. In truth, we've got two big offerings. Um, I, I happen to think that um, Liz Truss is far from being incoherent, is inflexibly coherent um, and um, <laughs> over-coherent. And it's too coherent to cope with an extremely fast-moving and extremely disturbing uh, uh, economic position. And I think she'll regret the coherence of it. Um, so far from me being a critic of them being all over the shop, you know, I'm not saying that they haven't sometimes made statements they haven't thought through, and it was pretty remarkable, I agree, to to have made the proposal about regional pay bargaining without being aware of the long-standing problem that, that she immediately ran into on it, because everyone who ever talked about it knows that problem. So I was a bit surprised by that. I'm not so, I'm not, I'm not, 
arguing um, that they've been a sort of um, paragons of depth. Um, but but I do think I don't think it has been one in which they've all no. flopped all over the place in a way that means we don't know what the argument is. No, D- Danny, I, 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 I'll put this to you. Um, I think that, like a lot of other observers, I do not trust either of them to stick to what they've said they would do. Um, particularly not Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak more because he's been Chancellor of the Exchequer and knows it, for more hours than it takes to get advice from your senior advisers about what's practicable. Uh, and we ha- and this is the lesson of the Johnson administration, after all. Dominic Cummings said it, we've repeated it on here. He said about Johnson, um, everything is reversible and everything will be reversed. And that's pretty much how you feel when you look at Liz Truss saying, one day I will hold an emergency budget, and the next day saying, what it will be a fiscal event? I mean, seriously. No, I, an, emergency, I so, an emergency budget is not a fiscal event, and that's what she said two days ago that she would have. Well, and I, what we learned today, she won't have. Okay, so uh, without getting oneself us, us um, hooked on that particular <laughs> problem of what a fiscal event and what a budget is, and whether or not it matters what they said about that, um, I, 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 we have a fundamental area of agreement. The, this is not because I, uh, it is not because I think that Liz Truss. Um, doesn't know what she stands for, but because I think she does know what she stands for, but what she stands for isn't a very practical solution, that I think she will come under huge pressure with it. But actually, one thing we have seen wins. as well during the campaign, it's like the, the, the point that Dave's making as well, is that she's already taught Tory MPs that with enough hoo-ha, she can be buffeted. So like regional pay, if she does think regional pay is the right thing to do, then she should have stuck at it, rather than putting it out there and then taking it back again. Um, if she does, if she does think no handouts is the right thing to do, say no handouts. I mean, you're not getting any more state help. Yes, but she but won't the, do that because she knows the, she'll be buffeted. The reason, by well, it's not because she'll be buffeted by. It's more that she'll be buffeted by reality. I've said, you yeah, know, yeah. I've been arguing this from the beginning. I don't think that's a very realistic position. Um, yeah. It's not a very realistic position when there's one particular commodity driving huge price uh, rises to decide you're not going to reorganise your your. Uh, government financing in order to help people with that particular problem you've obviously got to do that she'll she'll come to understand that because reality will hit her i don't think it's tory mps buffeting and, and the problem with um with with regional pay bargaining is exactly the, the same one so it, it, it's not sometimes I, I would argue she's quite consistent to these policies it's just that i'm not sure They'll work. We we may be yeah, arguing yeah, about yeah, nothing yeah, yeah. here. But, but, but Danny, you yeah. can't be you can't be consistent in policies if you say you're going to do a policies until reality hits you, and then you're not going <laughs> to do them. Well, that is not that is not consistent. That's only consistent with stupidity. Well, it's okay, not no, but actually, no. Else. In fact, I would say the opposite, right? Which is the one thing you don't want her to be is consistent to a policy that's stupid, right? So, uh, you know, I hope. <laughs> so she's not consistent. No, no. I hope that she. I hope that she will prove not consistent. I fear that she may prove consistent, right? So I. I <laughs> It is. It is. She has got a, a policy plan for dealing with this situation. Um, I, I. Whereas your concern, yours and Matt's concern, seems to be that she's sort of wobbling all over the place on it. My concern is exactly the opposite. No, it's no. clear that you're going to need to wobble all over the place no. on it, um, and I'm not she sure she not. will. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. So, uh, well, I don't totally agree with it. Leo's just says the constant sneering, picking fights over words, ridiculing politicians, making out the all tell lies. Everything is awful. It's very boring. I like Times Radio at first. You've avoided all the cynicism we get on other channels. I'm not sure we're doing any of that, are we, David? Um, we get yeah, well, I, I certainly am. Oh, I find. Um, in this particular... No, no, I'm, I think I'm pretty much guilty as charged when it comes to this race. I think this is a dispiriting race that shows politics at its worst and it's lost okay. touch with so reality. I, I don't... I, so let me just disagree with that as well, right? Um, I, I, the reason that I think Rishi Sunak's 
programme is more um, is better than uh, than Liz Truss is precisely because I think he can implement it if he was uh, elected, and it might make a difference. It might be the right thing. It may be that you have to go further. By the way, um, uh, but I, I don't think it is, I think um, it's you're suggesting both of them are equally guilty of this. Now, I think that Liz no. Truss is committing herself to a position that won't that won't last, no, Danny. or that or that ought not to last, and I worry it will last in circumstances in which it ought not to. Yes. So I, I'm not just sticking to uh, thinking about economics here, although that is by far and away uh, the biggest set of problems. But if I think about Rishi Sunak and what he said, for instance, about the Rwanda policy and these are, and, can, uh, and various other kind of anti-woke emanations uh, and so on, things that he almost certainly won't stick to and which is done uh, said simply to please this particular tiny electorate. No, no, it's not a tiny electorate that, that believes no, that, in the Rwanda is, policy. It is a tiny no, it's not. I, I, as, as you know... Thousand people, you, it's no. a tiny electorate. Just because okay. you happen to be one of them, no, no, I'm not. The rest in of us aren't. As you know, that I'm not in favour of this electoral system of the leadership. So that's not the, the pertinent issue. The point I'm trying to make is that it's uh, when you when you talk about the Rwanda policy, you're not appealing to, to uh, just a tiny group of people. There are lots of people in this country who don't agree with your position on immigration. Um, as you that's know, not we, about as my, you, it's not no, about my position on immigration, Danny. The well, it is Rwanda part, it policy is, is the part about the policy of deporting I'm asylum not, seekers. I'm not in favour of that. Un, unprocessed to a third country. I'm not in favour of that. That's not an immigration yes. policy. But I'm, the not, question, in, I'm not in favour of that policy either. That's not what it. we're arguing about. That I'm not in favour of that policy either. But we are. what we're discussing is whether or not it's a policy uh, that is... Um, merely about sort of pandering to a few people. It's not about that. It's about... There's only, no, no, on. only one whoa, example whoa, 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 I gave. Okay. We need to move on just because... It's uh, about lots of people thinking that we've got a problem, which we undoubtedly have got, um, of dealing with an uncontrolled number of, uh, of, of uh, illegal immigrants. And how do you deal with that? And coming up with a practical yeah. solution. Having said that, I don't agree with the Rwanda policy. I haven't necessarily got an alternative to it. And that's why Tories are talking about it. And there are millions of people in the country who also talk about it. It's a bit feisty for Fink. Normally the cosy consensus prevails. Uh, let's talk about dragons and see if we can all agree. What, D David, where do you stand on dragons? The ha Game of Thrones prequel, House of Dragon, which I confess I couldn't be less interested in. Uh, David, you your view on dragons? Well, well, so that's very interesting, Matt. Are you not interested in dragons? No. Never have been? No, I can't. Dragons, aliens, people with hairy feet, wizards, none of it. No, none, none of it at all. No. Um, Danny, are you romanced at all? By no, I, I basically in this, I don't basically like games or dragons. Thrones, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, I'm just, um, no, I, when I see a drama, if suddenly something happens where you think a dragon, I'm always thinking like, no. Yeah. No, not a dragon. So my, <laughs> I have to say my wife really, really likes it. So I am watching it. Um, I Yeah, well, basically she likes it and I like her, so I'm watching it. That's amazing levels of dedication. We have we have sort of time set aside in our house for like for them to watch, you know, the rest of the family will watch Star Wars or Stranger Things and all that nonsense. Um, but that, but guys, psychologically, psychologically, what do you think is going on here with this love of dragons? Then neither of you kind of like dragons. I can take them or leave them. So what do you think is happening? I mean, this is this is the thing that kind of fascinates me. Is there something? Is there something deep in the psyche? Or is it a British thing from George and the Drag, uh, George and the Dragon, or I know the Chinese, <laughs> the like Welsh dragon as well, the Welsh dragon? Bloody, absolutely sorry. Are you going to answer these questions you're dragon. asking? You can certainly search me. <laughs> if you if you've got a theory, David, as to where the love of dragons comes from. Uh, yeah, I think I, I I think what we like is the idea of this incredible power. 
Um, it's a little bit like kind of superhero powers, except embodied in the other rather than something that we that, something that we can relate to. Um, and I think we also love the. I think it's in, also in our dreams that we can fly quite often that we can fly. So somehow or other, to be associated with a thing of immense power but also its own kind of willpower that can fly. It must be hugely attractive and speaks oh. to some kind of really kind of atavistic human being within us. I'd like to be able to fly. That bit I do. Uh, <laughs> the, the, yeah? Being able to, no, being able to cook my own kebabs with my breath and everything, I don't think I, I'm not that bothered with that because I've got a stove. But the, um, <laughs> but, but I quite like to fly. So you like to be able to fly, that. David? Can we all just agree on that? We'd I'm, all quite I'm, like to be able to fly. My best dreams I always do. <laughs> Finally, some cosy consensus. Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich there, and of course you can read them both in the Times every week, but you need to get yourself a subscription. I've told you that before. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's inflation around the world. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, as the summer comes to an end, we are heading into the winter months. It's not just the weather that's bringing the gloomy forecast. Inflation could hit 18% by January, the highest rate in 50 years. This has come from the uh, investment bank uh, Citigroup, which is warning that inflation was entering the stratosphere yesterday. Resolution Foundation are also saying to rise to 18.3%. It's already at 10.1%. That's what it hit in July. Five times the Bank of England's target. They've said it could reach 13% in the next few months. That's a right word salad of numbers there. Talk under Liz Truss's plans. Interest rates could rise to 7% to try and bring inflation under control. But... Is Britain alone? Are we the only country facing crippling inflation? What we thought we'd do is head to different parts of the world to find out how it's affecting them and what countries are doing better than others. So let's get on Times Radio Airways. Put your trade tables up. Seats in the upright position, please. We are heading to Australia. 
where they've got one of the lowest inflation rates, but they are seeing a rise. Bernard Lagan is there. Australians are well aware that the cost of living is increasing. Prices of food, gas, petrol and rent have skyrocketed thanks to the inflation rate rising to 6.1% in June, a 21-year high. While the Australian Bureau of Statistics reported a 2.4% rise in annual wage growth for the March quarter, this has not been enough to compete with the soaring cost of living, leaving people around the country struggling. Akin to Australia, New Zealand has been weighed down under rising costs increasingly during 2022, according to Stats New Zealand. New Zealand's official data agency says its inflation rate is at 7.3%, which is considerably higher than Australia's 6.1. In Australia, one of the biggest contributors to the June quarter increase was the soaring price of motor fuels, petrol and electricity. Compared to June 2021, there was a 42.3% increase in the price of motor fuel, with average petrol prices breaking Australia $3 a litre. This is the highest price on record since 1990. The cost of food also had an impact on the CPI rise, with food and non-alcoholic beverage prices rising by nearly 10% in the year to June, that, June 2022, the highest rate ever since March 2008. The largest upward effect came from milk, cheese and eggs. Australia's top economists are divided about how to tackle ballooning inflation, uh, which is forecast to climb to a three-decade high of 7.75% by the end of the year. Three of the 48 leading economists surveyed by the Economic Society of Australia and the Conversation say Australia should be able to tolerate an inflation rate of 8% or higher. Seven expect inflation to fall back to an acceptable level without the need for any further action other than reserve bank adjustments to interest rates. So that's our man Bernard Lagan in Australia. Their interest rate is, it's, that's our inflation rate, 6.1%. It's back on the plane now. We're not doing this in a very logical order. We're going from Australia now to France. Charles Bremner is our Paris correspondent and joins me now. Hi, Charles. Everyone, Rad. Uh, what's the current inflation rate there right now? The inflation rate is just top 6%, and they fear that it's going to go up to about 10%. France has a lower rate than, than the European average. Uh, and why is that? What is? I mean, we've got inflation at, what, 10% already, over 10% in the UK. Why is it lower in France compared to the UK and to other parts of Europe? Well, there's several factors. One is that the Macron government is throwing money at it, uh, providing a lot of help to the population. It's uh, putting about uh, 23 pence on every um, litre of petrol at the moment. So petrol is down to about 1.7 euros a litre, which is, I think is uh, well under what it is in the UK. The main thing, though, in France is that the nuclear power provides 44% of the country's energy, and that is a huge help. And so that means, as a country, less reliant on the Russian gas, which uh, is pushing up prices here and in other parts of Europe. Yes, so Russian gas reliance is way down. It's about 15% compared with about half of or less than half of what Germany is reliant on. And that, that is a big help. Also, the, the, uh, the Macron government has also capped gas prices. It has frozen gas prices where they were in last December. Oh, that's interesting. There's always, in, what, is that sort of uh, interfered, intervened in the market, if you like? There's always been this big argument here about putting up the energy cap. Uh, but uh, Pfizer just said, well, that's, that's, there's a limit to what people can afford to pay for gas. 
Yeah, but there's of course the the the, the threat in that is that it will all explode when the when the cap comes off. <laughs> They've also capped electricity, and that the rise is not allowed to go above four percent from over this this year. Which um, well, the question is, what happens when, when they let that go? And, and and who's picking up the tab then? Is is the is the state subsidising it, or is it the energy companies, the suppliers, who are just having to suck up the uh, the costs? Well, the energy supplies are having to suck it up, and the government is completely nationalising EDF, EDF the, the national energy giant. It is largely state-owned, but now it's going to be a whole state-owned, so the the, tech, the, uh, the shareholders are not going to be able to grumble too much. Uh, Charles, it's fascinating. That's Charles Bremner, our man in Paris. Uh, 6.1% is the inflation rate in France. We're back on Times Radio Airways. We are heading to South Africa now. Uh, where we can hear from ta uh, Times Africa correspondent Jane Flanagan. South Africa's annual inflation reached 7.4% in June, already the highest for 13 years since the global economic crisis. And next week, when the July figures come out, it's predicted to be even higher than that. As elsewhere, it is the food and fuel price surges that have powered the numbers, in large part as a result of the war in Ukraine. Fuel prices alone were up by 45.3% in June, the largest single month rise since records began. The open market means it cannot rely on subsidies or import controls to manipulate inflation. And instead, it has the one tool in the bag that many other governments in the world use, which is interest rates. At the end of July, the Reserve Bank raised rates by 0.75% to 5.5%, the highest level in five years. The latest price increases will put more South Africans into hunger. A quarter of the population are already living in deep poverty. Um, that's about 16 million people surviving on about £30 a month or a pound a day. And the new food prices give you an idea of how far that gets you. The cheapest loaf of sliced bread now costs about a pound, so that's your daily allowance accounted for. A two-litre bottle of cooking oil has gone up by 45% over the last month or so and now costs five pounds. The impact of the rise in transport costs is going to be significant. There's no meaningful public transport in South Africa and getting around really relies on the private minibus taxes which eat up low wages. Even the better off like us now are thinking about how we can cut down on the number of times we need to get our car out. That was Jane Flanagan, our correspondent in South Africa, where inflation is 7.4%, the highest in 13 years. Remember the UK inflation over 10% uh, already. Right, uh, we're back on the plane then. Times Radio Airways. <laughs> Australia to France, then South Africa, and then entirely logically, we're heading to Germany now. Oliver Moody is our man in Berlin. Hi, Oliver. Hi, Matt. Uh, so what's the uh, the inflation rate in uh, Germany right now? Because we've talked so much about energy and gas and Germany's reliance on gas. What impact is that having on the cost of living? Not a great deal yet. Um, the headline rate of inflation is 7.5%. Uh, it's actually fallen a little since May. But the brutal reality is that most Germans have yet to feel the pain that is going to be coming over the next few months. Um, and that's largely because the, uh, the rampant inflation in wholesale energy prices across Europe has been uh, sort of staggered in Germany by, by a range of factors, so that the full impact of that has yet to be felt yet. So, and, and, and why is that? is that? Is that government policy holding it off or is it just a structural thing? It's a bit of both. So um, the first factor is just the way that the German energy market works. A lot of the suppliers buy 
their gas and electricity wholesale. Um, but uh, the majority of that is, is done through long-term contracts. So as those contracts come to an end, they suddenly have to pay massively more. And at the retail end, it works quite similarly. So just to give you an example, if you're signing a new contract for gas heating right now, it's going to cost you about five times what it would have done last year. But if you're on an existing gas contract, you're only paying about um, sort of 50% more than you were this time last year. The government has also um, really kind of softened the blow with a, a field duty holiday that's cost three billion. Um, and also um, it's been pretty clear that inflation has been reduced by um, very heavy subsidies for, for public transport. There's a ticket that allows you almost unlimited travel across Germany for nine euros a month, but that's going to come to an end next month as well. So that's all storing things up. And then today we read Germany on course to enter recession this year. Well, that, that is what most of the forecasters suggest. The, um, the economy literally flatlined. There was, there was neither growth nor uh, shrinkage in GDP over the second quarter. Things are likely to deteriorate in the third quarter and then things could get very, very dicey indeed over the winter. And obviously that then has a knock-on effect because Germany plays such a massive, you know, it's such a driver of the Europe's economy, uh, but we're talking about the EU or Europe in general, and that has a knock-on effect on other European countries and probably Britain as well. Absolutely. So some of the neighbouring countries that are very heavily dependent on German investment, places like Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, even Austria are going to, are going to feel the sort of secondary effects of um, Germany's economic struggles. And we've had a tendency to talk about the energy and economic crisis in very national terms. But the fact is, the European economies are so interconnected that um, there's no, really, no such thing really as a national crisis these days. <laughs> yeah, it's all just uh, spreads across uh, uh, borders. Oliver Moody, thanks very much for that. Oliver Moody, The Times correspondent in Berlin, where inflation is currently 7.5%. Uh, but with forecasts, it could go higher to over 10%, the highest in 70 years it would be there. Right, it's back on the plane, Times Radio Airways. A slightly more logical trip, this one. We're heading... We're heading from Germany to uh, Denmark next. Uh, Daniel Tiedemann is a journalist of the Danish newspaper Berlinsk and joins me now. Hi, Daniel. Hello. Uh, good to have you with us. Um, what's the inflation rate in Denmark right now? It's currently 9.6 this morning. 9.6%. Uh, so 9. So, so extremely high, extremely high. That's the high, but with the exception of the UK, that's the highest we've, we've had on our tour so far. Yeah, uh, it is. And yeah. why is that? What's driving the, the, the inflation rate? Of course, the oil and gas prices, uh, the electricity prices is driving it up, um, but also the demand from, from, from the, the citizens is, is driving up the inflation. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, it's a lot of factors driving up these, uh, these headline figures, but it's, it's of course, very worrisome. And what about uh, the government response? What's uh, what, what what's the, the state doing, if anything, to help those uh, help people? That's hard to say, but they've they've subsidised uh, gas users. People who had a gas pump has has all received seven hundred pounds from the government, but experts have uh, criticised that for causing more inflation. Uh, so when they receive this money, they'll just go out and spend more, and the the inflation will rise again. <laughs> so it's 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 uh, it's tough to say. So sorry, you said that seven hundred pounds. Yeah, seven hundred pounds for everyone with a okay. gas pump. So that's exactly the sort of debate that we've been having in the UK about, yeah. you know, does giving people more money actually fuel inflation or not? Has there been a bit yeah. any debate in Denmark about sort of changing the source of energy? You know, not relying on gas as much because of the, you know, the, the then you're essentially in yeah, the yeah, in the lap of, of Russia. But the thing of green energy that's that's always been a big. Uh, a big debate in Denmark, uh, and I think we are one of the the, the most green uh, energy-based countries in the world. But of course, we can do better, and we should do better. And I think the politicians are willing to do that. That's what they are saying, at least when I'm talking to them. 
so they're definitely trying to uh, trying to trying to get more uh, wind wind turbines and, and such uh, to to limit the need of uh, of oil and gas. And um, and what does winter look like in Denmark? Uh, as in this coming winter, um, if inflation is um, already at eight, but was you say nine point six percent? How concerned are people about what happens in the what you know? Having been to uh, Copenhagen in winter, yeah. it gets blooming yeah. cold. Yeah, of course. Uh, we, we are a wealthy country. We have to remember that. Um, we, we have the citizens have a lot of money, but of course there will be there will always be, uh, uh, be be people in the society who who can't afford this. Uh, and and we we actually today I'm covering a story where we we're talking to the politicians uh, about how they they want to they want to answer this issue. I would say, Fast, I really appreciate your time today. It's Daniel Tiedemann there, a journalist at the Danish newspaper Berlinsk, joining us live uh, from uh, Denmark and our tour of the world, uh, looking at inflation levels. Back on the plane then. Uh, we leave behind Copenhagen and we're heading to Washington now. We are heading to Washington uh, to get the picture of American levels of inflation. Our correspondent there is Alistair Dorber. The annual inflation rate in the US stood at 8.7% in July. It's down slightly. In uh, June, it was reported at 9.1%, which was a 40-year high in the American economy. The the cause for the slight um, easing is uh, moderate drops in uh, petrol prices, the price at the pump, and airfares. The key factors driving inflation in the US are the same as anywhere else in the world. Um, there are supply chain issues, uh, gas prices have gone up, uh, the war in Ukraine has, has exacerbated prices uh, and also in America lots of cash was handed out to uh, members of the public. Uh, they received checks in the post for in, in some cases sort of $1,500 at a time. A lot of this cash um, has been sitting in people's bank accounts while they've not been able to spend it um, and there's been a lot of pent-up demand. Uh, that's now being uh, addressed as, as, as COVID conditions have eased, lockdowns have, have come to an end and people are spending cash. Uh, unemployment's very low, uh, which means uh, jobs are, are filled. Uh, there's a great demand for, uh, for workers in the US, which is putting, pushing up uh, demand for wages and making employers uh, pay uh, greater amounts in wages which is having an effect on uh, prices in, uh, in supermarkets and shops. Um, the government recognises this is a huge problem. Inflation is one of those real touchstone issues in American politics. Joe Biden's administration has just passed uh, what is known as the Inflation Reduction Act. It's, a, uh, believe it or not, a, a multi-billion uh, dollar spending um, bill, um, which the administration is arguing vehemently that will lead to uh, falls in inflation. The uh, the Republicans say that this is going to have the opposite effect. If you pump billions of dollars into the economy, that's going to have uh, the opposite effect and push inflation up. Um, inflation is, is possibly the most important issue in American politics right now, and we'll see just whether or not voters believe the administration um, when they go to the ballot box in November for the, for the midterms. As Alice Adore there, the Times is Washington correspondent. Inflation at 8.7%. Was it 9.6% in Denmark? 7.5% in uh, Germany? 7.4% in South Africa? 6.1% in France? 6.1% in Australia? And here in the UK, over a 10.1% it hit in July and expected to go much higher. So what can we do about it? What can we learn uh, from what's going on around the world? Up next, we'll try and find out what's the solution. It's Matt Cholley on Times Radio.
Very good morning to you. We're looking at inflation around the world. As we've done our whistle-stop tour of the globe, uh, looking at how other countries are coping with the impact of rising food and energy costs. Of course, UK inflation is now at 10.1%. But what can we do about it? Andrew Sentence is a former member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, now Senior Advisor for Cambridge Econometrics, and joins me now. Hi, Andrew. Hi there. Um, there's a sort of there's clearly a disparity in figures, and partly it's because figures are published at different times, and it takes different you know different structural things mean that inflation comes through at different uh, moments for different countries. But clearly, all the countries we, we spoke to, it's go inflation is going up around the world, actually in a way that we've not seen in sort of major economies for a long time. Um, what what are the levers that the government, the Bank of England, could be pulling to try and do something about that? Right. Well, I think there are there are three levers. One is um, the uh, dealing with the energy price crisis, which I think in the UK is even more acute than other countries. And um, the notion that we have an energy regulator called Ofgem, which is meant to protect the public from energy price rises, um, and they are pushing through um, and threatening to push through more aggressively. Uh, very high increases seems to me to be totally perverse. So something needs to be done to um, cap those um, price rises that Ofgem are threatening. And, um, you know, the ideas that Keir Starmer has put forward seem to be a good starting point. Um, second thing is that the government needs to stop adding to inflation through various things like national insurance increases. So reversing uh, those might be a good thing. But the third and most important thing is to put a break on general inflation through rising interest rates. And I know this is not popular and it's going to be uncomfortable for people, but that is the tried and tested formula for trying to get on top of more generalised inflation pressures, which are a, a part of the uh, equation at the moment. Will that work in as much as uh, normally if inflation is rising, you put, you know, interest rates go up, so essentially people have to spend more money on their mortgage or credit card bills, whatever, and therefore they don't go out and spend it on clothes or eating out or a new car or a new sofa. But paying for your gas and electric isn't discretionary in the same way, is it? No, I don't think the idea of raising interest rates is uh, to tackle the, the energy price situation or some of the other external factors but there's a there's a domestic um, element to this inflation problem you can look at what's happening with wage increases with industrial unrest um, and that there's a general upwards drift in prices all the categories that feed into the consumer prices index are going up um, faster than the two percent figure and some of them are going up at eight to ten percent not just energy but things like hotels restaurants etc so um, the Bank of England needs to sort of get on top of that problem and make sure that this um, surge from energy prices and food prices doesn't then lead to a second round of effects um, so that everybody looks at those increases and says right I need a higher pay increase or I need to push my prices up uh, if I'm a business so that's the signal that the Bank of England needs to send. Yeah. And I think 
interest rates is not necessarily going to do that. So we're going to need higher interest rates. And just take me into the room in the Bank of England when the Monetary Policy Committee meets. How much time is, is spent on the sort of economic theory, if you like, of, well, if we try to get inflation to 2% and what's the right level of where we might put interest rates and, and that sort of calculation of all the numbers in the spreadsheet, if you like. And how much consideration is given to the, the harsh reality of, you know, people are having a really tough time now. And if you put up interest rates because you want to do a thing over there, that's going to make life really hard for people. Just describe what goes on in the room for me when you're having those, those discussions. Well, you know, the, the Monetary Policy Committee is not um, uh, ignoring the impact of rising interest rates. But to be quite honest, higher interest rates are not the main source of the problem. It's inflation that's the source of the problem. And their job is to get on top of inflation. And I think um, in the whole history of the Monetary Policy Committee and indeed of UK monetary policy going back to the 80s, we haven't seen such a big um, challenge as this. And I think uh, that the, the MPC needs to get itself into a different mindset. They're not fine-tuning the inflation problem. They've got to get on top of the inflation problem. They've got to act probably much more robustly and decisively than they've been used to in the past. Should they have acted sooner, do you think, to try and get ahead of it? I mean, clearly, you know, it's yeah, been six well, months now of uh, since, you know, the, the Russia invasion of Ukraine was likely to lead to uh, pressures on gas supplies driving up, you know, even I could possibly have worked that out. Um, do you think they should have been ahead of this? Is it, if they sort of missed, missed a trick of, never mind getting on top of it, they could have got ahead of it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, there were some of us, uh, myself included, who were um, calling for interest rates to start rising um, from sometime in the first half of last year. And it took the Bank of England until... December to make the, even the first uh, small rise and they have been behind the curve and it's not just to do with Ukraine because um, even before the Ukraine crisis kicked off in February we were already up to six to seven percent inflation which is way ahead of the two percent target so um, the Bank of England has been behind the curve and I think they need to get themselves into a totally different mindset um, that they are the inflation watchdog for the UK economy, mm. um, rather than just fine, as I say, fine tuning monetary policy. Just just a half a percentage here, just to try and get inflation down by yes, half I a mean, point, I, I which was so far that, away from that. It's, uh, it needs a bit more dramatic. Uh, I suggested that we get to up to three to four percent by the end of this year or early next year. That's the sort of region that we need to get into, um, and um, see how things then respond. And just finally, because we've been sort of going around the world looking at inflation levels, is, are there other countries, other central banks who are, who are doing this better than us, do you think? Um, I think it's a general problem in the central bank community. Um, I think there are countries which have tried to head off the energy price rise much more successfully, for example, like France um, and indeed possibly Germany. Um, and the structure of our energy market where the, um, the, the sort of deregulation that we had a few years ago by Ofgem allowed people to benefit from very low energy um, prices for a while and then suddenly we've, they've rocketed. And um, I don't think that volatility is the same in other countries. They have more stable energy prices. So we're suffering 
from um, not only the more generalized inflation problem, but also the structure of our energy market. It was really good to speak to you. Thank you very much for talking us through that. That was uh, Andrew Sentence, former member of the uh, Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee, rounding off our trip around the world. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.